Some of you are already there, but if you would like to turn with me in your Bibles, this morning we'll be in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, and this summer we've been studying this book of the Bible, the last letter recorded, written by Peter, the beloved apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter, who in the Gospels we found so many times opening his mouth only to insert his foot. Um, he's sometimes called the foot, uh, what's the foot-shaped mouth disciple or apostle, and he just, he's constantly, you think in the Gospels, Peter, um, what are you doing? But here we find him as an old man. He knows, as it's been revealed to him by the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is about to be martyred. He is going to be killed by the Romans for his preaching of Christ as king. The emperor didn't take too kindly to that. Peter knows he's going to be crucified. Jesus had told him that before he departed. And now we find Peter not brash. He's not afraid. He's not intimidated. He's calm. And in fact, he actually has no concern for himself in the letter. He he doesn't really even pray for prayer for, you know, calm. He has such a resolute understanding of who Jesus is and what's going to come about. He's a total peace. His real angst at this present time is for believers in various churches around the Mediterranean, in the Roman Empire, who are being assaulted from within and without by false teachers who are perverting the gospel of grace, turning the Christian life from a call to godliness into a license to sin. And chief among the marks of the false teachers is that they downplayed the repeated teaching in Scripture about the second coming of Christ. That theme is throughout this little letter, Peter is anxious, if he's anxious about anything, he is anxious that average, ordinary, Bible-believing, Christ-loving Christians do not be deceived by these false teachers. He's calling us, he's calling them to a life of God-word living, godliness. Yes, it still matters. We're called in Christ to be forgiven of our sins, yes, but then to sin no more as God gives us grace. And the motive for godly living, in part, in large part, is the coming of Christ. That one day we will stand before him. We need to hear this text in this present time. I am so glad, glad the Lord led us to study this little letter this summer. So with that introduction, I want to begin in chapter 3, verse 1, and I will read down through verse 9. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible translation. If you have a different translation, I'm sure you can follow along with me. 
This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Amen. This is God's word. Would you pause and Pray with me that God would now um, continue his work of impressing his word upon our hearts. And so, God, we pause after reading your word simply to acknowledge that we can understand this little letter with our minds. But the power in your word is applied by your own spirit. And so the very spirit of God that we just sang to and worshiped, we just pause one more time to say, please, spirit, please teach us, please mess with our lives, please do whatever you must do to keep us in the truth and that we would never depart from a longing for and an expectant waiting for the return of our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. I ask you a question at the beginning of this message. Seriously, in your day-to-day living, and I'm asking this for your self-evaluation, you don't need to answer. In your day-to-day living as a Christian, you profess faith in Christ, how often does your mind wander to the return of Christ? How often does the fact that Jesus is coming again to this earth, how often does that factor into your decisions you make in your life? How you use your time and the resources that you have? How much does the fact of the coming of Christ determine our church, what we do, our, our priorities, our urgency, our fervency in loving one another, in witnessing to others who don't know Jesus? How, what kind of place does the truth of the second coming of Christ, what kind of place does it really hold 
in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. I hope that for many of you, the truth is that you're, you're thinking, I, I, I long for the coming of Christ every day, and that is good. But I think truthfully, all of us could say that our temptation is continually to think and to act and to live as though the way things are right now are pretty much the way things are going to be. And that we shouldn't really expect any kind of dramatic, cataclysmic events to occur, such as the coming of Christ for his people and then coming to this earth with them. How large does the coming of Christ loom in the mind and the life of believers and of the church? Sadly, I fear in our day, increasingly, the second coming of Christ is almost like a footnote in your average evangelical Christian church. Certainly not true in all places. But whereas 50 or 75 or 100 years ago, the second coming of Christ was a dominant theme in churches, and I mean across denominations, I mean Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, yes, congregational, conservative congregational churches. There was a time when there were conferences, and and I know that in our day that, sadly, conferences on eschatology are looked on with just suspicion, but I'm, I'm not talking about one brand or conviction on eschatology, whether it be dispensational or covenantal. I mean, generally, across the spectrum of professing conservative Christianity, there was a regular writing upon, preaching about, teaching about the second coming of Christ. And it's not the case in our day. And again, it's not the case in our day increasingly across the spectrum. In churches where once there was once an emphasis upon the second coming of Christ, it's really now rare that you hear of it. I did not have the time this week, uh, but if I had a little group of researchers to help me, it would be a fascinating little project to identify, say, I don't know, 30 or 40 or 50 evangelical churches, let's say in New England. And let's do a little project in which we look at the titles or the texts of the sermons preached over the last five years. And how many or of and what proportion of those sermons would there be some discussion or emphasis upon the second coming of Christ? I don't know, but my suspicion, and I confess it's just a suspicion, based on my conversations, is that we would be rather surprised that the second coming of Christ, as far as a doctrine considered worthy of the focus of the church, has fallen on hard times. And we're learning in our text from the Apostle Peter, the Apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're learning that this is a sign of of serious and dire proportions. This is not a good thing. 
where there is a de-emphasis upon the certain, sure second coming of Christ to this earth, where there is a de-emphasis of that truth, a downplaying, a dismissing, a belittle, a setting aside of that truth, you can be absolutely certain that there are evil and demonic forces behind that dismissing of the second coming of Christ. It is not neutral. It is not just because we have more important things to talk about. It is utterly demonic. This is a burden of Peter from early on in the letter. Look back with me in chapter 1, verse 16. In light of these false teachers that he's going to talk about, Peter says, we, meaning himself and the other apostles, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's not referring there merely to the first coming. Among the false teachers, they had to uh, confess that this Jesus of Nazareth was in some way, shape, or form the Christ that he had come. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made any entry into Christian churches. So he's talking primarily in verse 16 about the power and the coming, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty there on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter, James, and John saw Jesus lit like fire in front of them, a glow with the glory of God, what they saw in that moment face to face was a realization of the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 9 of the glorious son of man, the Messiah, who would come one day after all these earthly kingdoms and establish a kingdom on this earth, the kingdom of God, that would be without end. He's saying, we weren't talking to you about some mythical kingdom. We saw the king to come in all of his glory there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And yet, in his day, around A.D. 68 or so, when Peter is writing this letter, near the end of his life, about to die, even after not even one full generation has passed since the death and resurrection of Christ, Already, there are those mockers in chapter 3, verse 3, who come with their mocking and say, verse 4 of chapter 3, where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of his coming? The sad reality is that Christianity... And somehow the teaching of the Bible in the Old and New Testament can be perverted or co-opted. What I mean by that is, is, is false teachers and false teaching can steal the, the vestiges, the, the semblance of the Bible, the Old and New Testament, strip it of its guts and repackage it into a form of Christianity that sells better in the day and age we live in a little more consumer-friendly, in which the gospel, which is about how you can be reconciled to God, but is primarily a message of how you can be reconciled to God because you need to get ready for the day that's coming and you're either going to be in the kingdom of God or you're going to be in hell. That is the gospel message. 
The gospel message is not primarily about how God can help you here and now in your life. And he does. And we can testify to that this morning. Those of us who are believers, we say, we, we don't know how we could get through this life without Jesus. But that is not the primary intent of the gospel. The primary, gospel, primary intent of the gospel is to prepare you to stand before your God and your creator and to not enter into judgment, but to enter into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel can be perverted, co-opted, stolen to use for earthly purposes that the Holy Spirit never intended. And that was what what was happening in Peter's day. When we fail to see the importance and the essential biblical teaching about the second coming of Christ, we lose not only a joy that God gave to the church, the anticipation of Christ, but we also lose an essential motivation for living the Christian life. Why is there such Maybe why is there such indifference? Why is there such uh, a calm or a indifference? Why is there lacking the church, lacking fervency in our day? Why is it that in my grandfather's generation after World War II, tens of thousands of men and women went into missions around the globe to share the gospel like my grandfather on an Amazon river in the middle of the jungle? Why did they do that? in part because they believed that Jesus was coming soon and that they needed to help lost sinners prepare for that coming. But today, it's almost like we've become too cool for that. It's almost like teaching on the second coming, anything remotely related to the future today, somehow we think that's speculative. Somehow we think that's divisive, and so we just leave future things aside, and, and we just want to focus on wisdom of the Bible and, and the project of building the church, and my life is given to building the local church. But the Bible from beginning to end is about this message of the future coming of the kingdom of Christ. You say, prove it. I'm glad you said that. Let me just show you a few verses. Let's just go to the New Testament. Turn for a moment to Acts chapter 1. If you want, if you can turn quickly, I may be going faster than you can turn. But Acts chapter 1, verse 11. When Jesus appeared to his disciples, his apostles, after his resurrection, and he gave them many instructions. And there in Acts chapter 1, he's teaching them. And Peter says to Jesus, it's interesting you turn there. I'm, I need to turn there as well. <laughs> Acts chapter 1, verse 10. Uh, a little before that, Peter said, verse 6, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And notice that Jesus did say, oh, Peter, where'd you get that idea? You're still caught up on eschatology. No, he didn't say that. He said, it's not for you, verse 10, to know, 7, to know the times of the epochs which the Father has fixed. In other words, Jesus affirmed Peter's expectation of a coming kingdom in which Israel would have a part, not the only part. But then look at verse 10. As Jesus ascended 
into heaven, where he is now bodily. Verse 10, as the disciples were gazing intently into the sky while Jesus was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. I fear that there's an increasing assumption by too many today that somehow the coming of Christ is just some kind of spiritual, you know, he's here. And he is here by his spirit, even this morning. We enjoy the spiritual presence of the Lord Jesus by his own Holy Spirit with us. But when we talk about the second coming of Christ, we are talking about that same exact glorified body that Peter and the other apostles saw bodily going into heaven. We're talking about that body, that Jesus coming again in that body. And with those pierced feet, with the wounds on those feet, touching down on this earth again. That's what we're talking about. Not some spiritual vague coming, the personal body bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the angels, this is what they say in verse 11, they insist upon it. He will come in just the same way. That's at the beginning of the book of Acts. That's kind of after the Gospels. That's the beginning of the New Testament. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We regularly read this passage every month as we enjoy the Lord's Supper together. As uh, God willing, we will next Sunday. And did you notice this? I mean, I try to emphasize it regularly at our Lord's Supper, but in, in Paul's recounting of the Lord's Supper, after he describes how the Lord Jesus broke bread and given thanks and, and said, verse 24, this is my body, which is for you. In the same way, he took the cup. And so we eat bread and we drink grape juice in remembrance of the death and burial of our Lord. Why do we do this? Verse 26, the Apostle Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Three words, say them with me. Until he comes. Until he comes. It's not peripheral to the faith. It's not a, a niche subject that you can dial in upon if you want to. The second coming of Christ is at the center of our faith, along with the crucifixion, the resurrection. We long for the coming of Christ. This is the whole bent of our faith, the, 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 that tower there in Pisa, Italy. I had the opportunity to be there once. Why we went there, I mean, it's kind of neat. It's just this tower in the middle of this grassy lawn there in Italy. And it's, yeah, it's like this. And you've seen probably, you know, TV shows about how far it's gone each year. It's going to go over sometime. But, but okay, that's, I just think that was really poor construction way back when. Um, but but the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, in a sense, is to be like that tower leaning and looking for and longing for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our, that's our leaning. That's our longing. 
Look down at 1 Corinthians 16, 22. We're just demonstrating that this is, this is central to New Testament Christianity. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. Paul says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Wow. We don't, we skip over that verse in our generation. It's a serious thing. By the way, if you're here this morning and you've not trusted in Christ, we'd, we'd love to explain to you about how you can know him, why you should love him. Maybe you're just new, you really have, you don't know much about Jesus, and we're so glad you are here. But in truth, I need to be honest with you, it's a serious, serious thing to not believe what God says about his son, Jesus Christ. It's not kind of like, you know, an option, like some people like coffee, some people like tea, Some people like Buddha, some people like Jesus. No, here the word of God says that anybody who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ is, I didn't say it, the Holy Spirit said it through Paul, accursed. Wow. What I want you to notice is that next little word, Maranatha, which which translated means, oh, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. This is, this is the angst and the longing. So the opposite of being, of not loving the Lord is loving the Lord so that you are longing for his coming. Maranatha. The church is a church that is continually, the true church is a church that's continually crying out, Maranatha, come quickly. And, and as if there was any question. So we've looked at Acts. We've just looked at two references in the writings of the Apostle Paul. We've seen what Peter is saying, and now in Second Peter, let's go all the way to the end of our New Testament to Revelation chapter 22, and let's hear from Jesus himself. What does Jesus think? How important is this fact of the second coming of Christ, of his return? Revelation, the very closing verses of the Bible, there in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, Jesus is speaking And Jesus says, referring to himself as the one who testifies to these things, yes, I am coming quickly. Next to last verse in the Bible. Yes, I am coming quickly. Jesus wants to impress this fact upon the hearts and minds of his people. And the response of godly Christians is, amen, with John, come, Lord Jesus. Basically, apart from the closing benediction, the closing words in the Bible, are you ready for this? I mean, think about it. The closing words in the Bible are, come, Lord Jesus. And so, back to 2 Peter it is no small matter when we live in times in which there is a downplaying or a dismissing or a mocking of the second coming of Christ. Uh, by and large, I think in the church today, the professing church, I don't know that um, there'd be many teachers who would stand up and outright mock the second coming of Christ. But we can still by our dismissing, our neglect, our snickering, 
effectively make into a joke what is the glory and hope of the church. And it's a serious matter. Well, why did the false teachers, why did they say this? What was their confidence? They, they mocked the second coming of Christ. And their reason in verse 4 of chapter 3 was, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. They held to a, a, a view of life which is technically called uniformitarianism. In other words, uniform. Every, everything that is now yeah, you may have little variants, variations in your life, but pretty much the way things are is the way things have been and the way things will be. Not expecting any big changes, anything dramatically to happen. Our culture, particularly with our technology, I mean, we, we just think, you know, everything just continues on. Take the power out in our house and we start freaking out like it's the apocalypse, right? I mean, we just, we just I mean, there's always going to be power. I mean, there's always going to be food. I mean, I mean, of course, I mean, somebody somewhere is just going to do that and and we just are, are prone to think, assume, well, I mean, come on. I mean, I mean, things will just be the same, won't they? Well, no. And five reasons. I need to move very quickly. Uh, maybe we won't get to all of them this morning. Peter responds, exposing the folly of this line of thinking. Number one. In verse 5, Peter says, when they maintain this. In other words, this assumption. I mean, I don't have to really prepare for the second coming of Christ. I mean, I know it's in the Bible, but, you know, I, I don't have to really adjust anything. That's a bad idea to maintain. You want to be prepared. You want to be expecting. Why? Peter says, because when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. In other words, we'll give the first reason that we should not follow the false teachers is this. The same word of God that promises the second coming of Christ is the same word by which the heavens and earth were created. The same word of God that promises the second coming of Christ is the same word that created the earth that your feet are on right now. He's exposing the, the poor logic of these false teachers. They somehow acknowledge that God created the world. Well, wasn't that kind of cataclysmic? There was a time when there was not a heavens and earth, but God, by his word, spoke all things into being. I mean, that's kind of a change. That kind of undoes your whole theory of uniformity. And his point is, this, by, if God, by his word, could make all things that exist into being out of nothing, even the water by which he used to create the earth and heavens, he'll say in a moment, but if God, by his word, created everything out of nothing, if, if you're ex living and you're breathing and you're walking upon this earth, you have living proof that by the word of God, God does what he says and God can do whatever he wants to do. And if God created the earth and the heavens by his word, and if by the same word he promises the second coming of Christ, you want to bank on the second coming of Christ. The word is powerful. The word of God is effectual. 
God's word brings about what he has said. Secondly, Peter points out that the same water that God used to form the earth was the water that God suddenly unleashed upon the men and women living in disobedience, living ungodly lives. It was by the same water. End of verse 5, the earth was formed out of water by water. It doesn't mean that water was eternally existing with God. It means that God made water and it's with water as an elemental substance that he formed the earth. And it's with that same water, verse 6, that at that time in the days of Noah, God destroyed the earth being flooded with water. So the same word that promises the second coming of Christ is the same word that created the earth. The same water that God used to form the earth was the water that God suddenly unleashed upon the men and women of Noah's day. And those men and women living in Noah's day had been warned for hundreds and hundreds of years to repent and turn to the Lord. How how do we know that? Peter has already in chapter um, one referred to Noah as a as a preacher of righteousness. I'm sorry, chapter two, verse five. God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Well, what was Noah preaching? If he was preaching righteousness, he was preaching who God is and the right way to live, and that men and women living in his day needed to repent. So Noah lived. How long did Noah live? 950 years. You can look that up in Genesis chapter 9, verses 28 and 29. The flood came about when, when Noah was 600 years 600 years old. So if this man for centuries had been present preaching, hey, you want to get ready. God's going to judge this earth. You need to be reconciled to him. Oh, Noah. I mean, here we are. It's been 200 years you've been doing this. Nothing's changed. Yeah, right. Like the earth is going to flood. Sure. Yeah, (laughs) that's a good one, Noah. And then we know that God fulfilled his word, and the world was flooded. Interesting that in our day, there are some professing evangelicals in the Biologos. Um, it's a, a group of, of professing Christians who deny, deny a literal six-day creation. And I just was reading last night their website. They also deny that the earth was flooded. Really? Um, and yet they want to maintain that they believe the Bible is authoritative, inspired, but what it says about the earth being flooded isn't true. No, we, we know the earth was flooded by the word of God. We know by geological evidence. And the, the point is here, everyone was living for hundreds of years under the warning of the coming of a flood preached through Noah And everyone dismissed Noah as a fool, but that didn't stop the flood from coming. People had plans. 
Vacations were scheduled. Building projects were underway. Business plans were being unfolded. Weddings, funerals, birthdays were all scheduled and on the way. And not one single one of those events stopped the appointment that God had determined when he would open up the floodgates from under the earth and from above and flooded the earth. They assumed nothing would change, but oh, the flood was a change, wasn't it? Thirdly, Peter points out that the same word by which God is presently upholding the heavens and earth is the same word by which God will command the, the cosmos to be burned up. You can word that however you want. But this is his logic. He's saying, look, you believe that by the word of God, everything was created, so why do you doubt that the same word about the second coming of Christ won't true? You believe that the word of God preached through, Mo- through Noah concerning the coming of the flood was true and then it came. Why don't you believe about the second coming and the judgment of God upon the earth? Peter says in chapter 3, verse 7, By God's word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. God upholds all things presently by the word of his power, by the word of Christ, we learn in Colossians. God's word is upholding all things, but he is upholding all things, ready to unleash not water this time, but a fire, a day, verse 7, of judgment and destruction of godly, ungodly men. The same word by which God is presently upholding the universe is the same word by which God will consume this universe in fiery judgment, including ungodly men and women. You want to be prepared for that. And the false teachers were mocking that. They were downplaying the second coming of Christ. They were also downplaying the judgment of God. And that is another mark of the age we live in. Among the professing Christian church and evangelicals, we simply, honestly, don't take at face value what the Bible says about the coming judgment of God. We've not only taken the fire out of hell, if we even believe in hell, we've now taken the fire out of any kind of judgment upon this earth. And so we cut up the Bible and we we cut and paste and make it into our own book. You don't want to do that. You can't do that. Because we've learned through Peter that every single word was never merely the will of man, but men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke as from God. You want to take every single word in this Bible, in this book, seriously. And when it says, thus and thus shall occur, you want to, in faith and humility, absolutely believe it's going to occur. There's a day of salvation coming, but there's also a day of judgment. It's referred to in the Bible frequently by this phrase, the day of the Lord. And, and those who are united to Christ are, are saved. They are safe. But generally speaking, the day of the Lord is not a happy day. It is not a good day. For all those who are apart from God, for the ungodly, the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. 
In Isaiah chapter 13, just one example of this teaching of the day of the Lord. Remember, Peter opened up this section by saying, in chapter 3, verse 2, remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. He's saying to the people he's writing to, don't throw out your Old Testament. Don't throw out your New Testament. You remember what those prophets wrote. You remember what your apostles wrote. You don't leave it behind. You remember it. So what did Isaiah say about the day of the Lord? Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning and anger to make the land a desolation, and God will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. Thus says God, I will punish the world for its evil. Can, can I, is there any evil in the world right now? Can we agree on that? I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. We need to tell them that in love as, as those who ourselves are, are sinners. But we need to tell men and women the truth. You're headed for punishment. God says, I will put an end to the pride of the arrogant. I will bring low the lofty pride of the ruthless. I will make, says God, I will make in the day of the Lord, in this future time, God says, I will make mortal man scarcer than fine gold. Wow. I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. Is God loving? Of course God is loving. And he is holy. We need to be made right with him. We need to be made right with him. We'll pause there on that verse this morning, but listen in closing. You should know that the mockers will come. We are living in the last days. Peter says, in the last days, mockers will come. Here we are. Mockers are here, and with their mocking, they are mocking the second coming. And you even notice, maybe it's not, again, it's not out front maybe, but you just notice kind of an unspoken agreement. We're not going to talk about that. And again, I'm not talking about one particular conviction about the, what the Bible says about the end times. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking generally orthodox Christianity. Whatever your interpretation of what the Bible says about the last times, we hold to the second coming of Christ bodily to this earth, else we are no longer Christians. So mockers will come, and they are here with their mocking, but dear ones, Paul, Peter says, he calls you the believers, he calls you beloved. Notice in verse 8, sorry, you already closed your Bible, maybe some of you, but he says he calls you beloved. Beloved of who? Yeah, Peter loved them, but beloved of God. Beloved, don't join the mockers. Remember the words spoken beforehand, written in Scripture, and consider how, consider how, if Christ really is coming, which he is, if 
There's fiery judgment coming, which it is. Consider, dear beloved ones, how you and I might live out the few remaining days that we have, which we don't know the number of them, for God and for Christ. Christ is coming. Judgment is coming. How are we going to live our lives in light of this? So that when we stand resurrected before our resurrected glorious Lord, look him in the eye, that we are able to give an account. Oh Lord, I longed for your coming. And I did not live all as I ought to have. I know and you know. But oh Lord, by your grace and by your mercy, with the little life and the span of time that you gave me, I sought with my might, with my resources to serve you, to build your church, and to let others know that they might become to know you. Beloved, consider how you might live. Do not go along with the crowds in their godless living, but, chapter 3, verse 18, and here I close, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Our Father, we come to you. We thank you for your word, how clear it is. We ask your forgiveness for even maybe secretly, even unknowingly harboring doubts about the second coming of your Son. Today we renounce those doubts. We turn from them and we respond to your word and we believe, Lord, that you are coming again. Help us now to respond. Help us to live. And our heart cry this morning as we close is Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.